Welcome back. As we head into Hour 2 this Wednesday, November 25th, it's a high honor and privilege to welcome back to the show um, not only someone I consider a friend, but someone to me, a journalistic hero, and that is Alex Berenson, uh, former reporter for the New York Times, journalist, author, his most recent series, Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, Part 3, released this week, Masks. You can get it at Amazon. That itself was a struggle, but you can get it. Alex, welcome back, sir. Thanks, Seth. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, but thanks for writing this. Um, there's a lot to go through here on your piece on on your latest installment. Um, let me back into it this way. I uh, was watching TV earlier today, and Geraldo Rivera in the state of Ohio where he lives was shouting to someone on TV, wear your damn mask. We just lost the highest number of people in Ohio due to COVID yesterday. Wear your damn mask. You're right, I wish masks worked. They don't. Talk to us. So, I mean, if... I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at all. It's very serious. People yeah, are you know, dying, it's fine. If, it it, it the, garners that response. I, I, I get if it. If the masks worked... Why would Ohio be having more deaths right now? Why would we be in the middle of a you know of a big second or third wave? Right, most of the United States is wearing masks all the time when they're outside, and and uh, and that's certainly true in blue states, uh, and it's certainly true in places like Illinois where the you know where this new wave has hit the hardest. Um, you know, in fact, Florida, where the mask requirement was lifted in late. Uh, September by the you know by the governor actually has seen a much smaller wave this time. Um, so here's the thing, and, and there's some, you know if you read the booklet, you'll see I go into the science pretty thoroughly, which is what I've been doing you know in the earlier booklets too, but especially in this. You, people have the wrong impression of masks, okay? Because we see this thing on our on our face or you know on somebody else's face, and you hear scientists talking about droplets, and you think oh. Well, the mask must work, right? Mm -hmm. It it catches this droplet of spit or of phlegm, and it keeps it from coming out. Um, And and yes, a mask will do that. But when scientists are talking about a droplet, they're talking about something very specific, and it's very tiny. It's it's between 5 and 100 microns most of the time. And a micron is a millionth of a meter. Okay. It's far, far too small for anyone to see. Mm-hmm. So the ma- if the mask is working or if the mask is not working, you can't actually see what it's doing. A mask also has to be fitted properly to your face or else, as, as somebody, uh, you know, a, a well-known epidemiologist said, it's like fixing three of the five doors on a submarine. Mm. Uh, the air will just flow into the places where the mask is not fitting. So, so, so when we talk about masks working, uh, we're talking about uh, potentially if you wear a respirator, which is an N95 face covering, okay, they're not called masks, they're called respirators, mm-hmm. and you have that fitted properly, and you wear it even though it's uncomfortable and even though it may kind of restrict your breathing. You don't touch it, you don't play with it. That is actually going to protect you a little bit, okay? It's going to, it's going to, or even more than a little bit, it's going to filter a lot of very small particles. There. And it may work the other way too. It may filter particles that you're exhaling. Mm-hmm. But a standard surgical mask, much less a cloth mask, a handmade cloth mask, which is what most people wear these days, doesn't have what scientists call the filtration efficiency to remove most of the small particles, whether 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 they are virus size or a little bit bigger than virus size. And that's and that's known. Okay, what I'm saying to you is not an argument in the scientific community. 
So what science is, what the public health experts are essentially saying is, we hope, even though we don't have real good evidence for this at all, we hope that people are exhaling enough larger particles that have virus that the mask can catch, that maybe it's going to reduce the sort of overall amount of viral particles in the air uh-huh. by a significant amount. Uh-huh. And, and, and if, if that's true, okay, and by the way, if I'm wearing my mask right, and if reducing the particles by a significant amount actually cuts the transmission of the virus, which isn't clear either, because let's say the number of viral particles you need to be infected is so small that, you know, reducing it by 80% wouldn't matter anyway, which mm-hmm. there's no evidence reduces it by 80%. But let's say, let's say that all those things come together. There's one more thing that needs to come together for masks to mean anything, and that is asymptomatic people have to be exhaling enough virus who are infected to matter. Because uh-huh. we all agree that if you're sick, if you have a fever or a cough, don't go outside unless right. you really have to. And in that case, if you have to go outside, wear a mask. Right. And if those people are the only ones wearing masks, that's actually a symbol to the rest of us. Hey, this person's sick. I want to give that person some space. But when you say to everybody, you have to wear a mask and you have to wear it inside and you have to wear it outside, that signaling function disappears. Uh-huh. So, so, so once you actually look at the science closely, it is clear that masks, at best, at best, are going to be marginally effective at reducing the spread of the virus, and they're not going to protect the wearers at all. Okay, and here's the one final point. Sure. If the public health establishment said, hey, we want you to wear a mask because this is a troubled time for our country, and lots of people are working very hard, and we do know some people are dying from this, and this is a way you can show solidarity. We're not going to require it, but this is a way you can show solidarity and maybe it'll help a little bit, and it's something you can do, I I wouldn't have any objection to that, because that would be the truth. Okay, but that's not what we're doing. We're actually arresting people for not wearing this thing that is provably useless as a defense mechanism and probably useless as a a way to reduce transmission. Now, one of the the things I have looked at, uh, you know, not as as scientifically as you have. Sorry, you got me going. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I've looked at, not as scientifically as you, is states that have had mandates for states that not, countries that have had that, countries that haven't. And I see no differentiation in increases of cases based on that. But there does seem to me, or at least the casual observer, that in the Asian countries where masks are fairly prevalent, they seem to have done better. Is that, is, is that, do, do you have a, re- a response to that, or am I just misreading it? No, 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 that's correct. And actually, way back in March, before I had read any of the science and I understood it, I tweeted something saying effectively that, hey, maybe masks work. Look mm-hmm. at Asia. Mm-hmm. And, and that's con- continued to be true. Here's, here's the problem. We don't really know why East Asia seems to have avoided this. I see. Okay? Okay. It, it, it could be masks. It's probably not. But, you know, that's a theory. It could be that people in East Asia were exposed to the initial SARS and very uh, heavily or other coronaviruses, and somehow they have a lot of cross immunity. It could be that they're, you know, in Japan, there's almost no obesity. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they have relatively low rates of lung cancer in Japan, even though there's a high smoking rate. Okay. Maybe there's some genetic, um, you know, protection against this illness that we don't understand. We, 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 we don't know. The mask theory is a theory. Here's the problem. In other parts of the world, including the United States, including Europe, including South America, where masks are heavily worn, it's made no difference. Right. And so this is, this is the problem with epidemiology at that level. 
it's too easy uh, to, to produce a counterexample. And I talk about this in the booklet. What we want are randomized controlled trials. And we now have a randomized controlled trial, which is where you split two groups of people into two groups or into, into two, you know, interventions. One group wears a mask, one group doesn't. You see how many uh, infections they get. They did that in Denmark in the spring, and they found that there were not that there were the same number of infections basically in both groups. So that's really strong evidence the mask doesn't protect the wearer. The problem is trying to do that on the basis of my mask protects you is really complicated to do, right. and we haven't been able to do it yet in a meaningful way. So we're stuck with this sort of uh, this epidemiology that's really weak now. We could never prove in a randomized control trial that smoking causes lung cancer either. But how do we know smoking causes lung cancer? Because smokers get lung cancer at 20 times the rate of non-smokers. Uh-huh. So at some point, you have to accept there can be really only one reasonable explanation here. But guess what? It took about 20 years for doctors even to accept that explanation. So, so with masks, we have no evidence nearly that strong, and yet the whole public health establishment basically overnight decided to tell you that masks work. We're talking with Alex Berenson, in his new booklet, Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, Part 3, Masks, available at Amazon right now. Alex, you've written a lot on, on, on psychiatry and psychiatric effects. I want to ask you a psychological question, if you can, because I think you and I may have a disagreement, and you tell me where I'm wrong here, when you said if we were told that masks should be worn in solidarity for some kind of consciousness, that might be a more acceptable thing. That might be where I'm actually most opposed to masks, because I don't like the idea that a healthy society, which we are in an overstated epidemiological pandemic, is overstated. And I become a walking billboard of public panic and advertisement that we are a sick society when I think we are not a sick society. Agree or disagree? I actually agree with that. That's not exactly what I'm saying. Okay. So I think there are three sort of psychological explanations here. The first is the one that I, that I threw out, which, is, which to me is, quote, unquote, the good reason, which is I don't have to do this, but I'm wearing this like a breast cancer thing. Okay. Okay. I, I, I realize that people are working hard in the hospitals and, and some people are dying from this, and I want to show my solidarity. Okay. And I'm going to wear it. Okay. What you're saying is the, is the medium reason. It's the not, it's the not good reason, but to me it's not as bad as the third reason. <laughs> okay. the, medium, the medium reason is the, the government is trying to instill panic. Yep. Right? So this, yep. is a, this, this is not the flu. It's yep. much worse than the flu. That's why we're making you wear a mask. Right. And we're going to try to frighten you into accepting lockdowns and other problems. Okay, that's the second reason. The third reason, which is really the bad reason, is this is useless. I know it's useless. I'm going to try to shove it down your throat and see how hard you protest and how many people just sort of accept this quasi-science. And that's, that's my leading edge to do other things, such as test and trace or, um, or you know, uh, mandatory or quasi-mandatory vaccinations. This is, my, this is my effort to essentially test what the population will accept mm. without strong science. Oh, wow. Up. Now, now, and by the way, vaccinations are really complicated. If it turns out that the vaccine really is 95% effective and doesn't have, you know, significant side effects, I think that'll be a good thing, okay? And, and, and you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. The, the vaccine, Same. If, if the early data Same. is correct, yeah. will, be, will be great. But yeah. my objection to this is, Let's see the safety data. We don't have it, and we really don't have it. We, you know, we, 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 the only people we've seen are the people inside the companies and maybe some people at the FDA. So let's see it. Okay. Um, but to me, 
that third reason is is bad. Yeah. yeah. Alex, you're great, and I know how busy you are. I want you busy. You make us a more sane society. Alex Behrens, in his book, Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, out at Amazon.com right now. Part 3, Masks. Godspeed, Alex. Have a great holiday. Thanks for letting us take some of your time. Celebrate with your family. Don't be afraid. Open the windows if if you're afraid. That's the best thing you can do. There you go. There you go. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Take care, Alex. We'll be in touch. Love talking to Alex Berenson. Love talking to y'all, too. 602 Just a reminder, if you miss any parts of the show, they're all available at 960thepatriot.com. Jim is in Phoenix uh, talking about something we were doing earlier in the week. I'm glad he is. Jim, hi. Welcome. Hello, Seth. Thank you. I, um, I, 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 I so welcome any brief interlude from the cacophony of chaos that we're subjected to. I'm writing that um, down. Cacophony of chaos. I love it. I'm surprised <laughs> I hadn't you. heard it before. Good. Yeah, that's Thank good. you. I, I, uh, uh, I forget exactly what day, but uh, last week you uh, played a portion of the debate between Ronald Reagan and uh, William F. Buckley Jr. Yes. Regarding the Panama Canal. Yes, right, right. It was the occasion of Bill Buckley's birthday, and I debated one of two debates to play. It was either that or his debate from 1965 on race. I can go into why I chose what I did, but go ahead, sir. Yes. Well, now you've given me another one to uh, YouTube. Um, anyway, I was just so taken by it. Uh, I, 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 I got him last time I described to you things that I'm saying to my wife. I was chasing her around the house, uh, reading excerpts from uh, Myron Magnet's uh, uh, the dream and the nightmare. Kinky. Yeah, well, <laughs> chasing what, my wife what, around the house, what? reading portions of Myron Magnet's dream what? and nightmare. What? Okay, what? sorry. What? I'm sorry, what? Jim. What can I? What can I say? <laughs> yeah. What can I say? Okay. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a weird human. It's being. a little wild so, over at Jim's house these days. Okay. Well, right. well, you like this one then? I got home and I said, Siri. I dearly love and worship her. I've been I've been listening to porn, but don't worry, it was intellectual porn. Uh huh. Yeah, it is. You played that. You played that excerpt of Buckley in his summation yeah. uh, or conclusion. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I was just uh, lost in his parenthetical right. yeah. observations. Yeah. The man is the master yeah. of the parenthetical observations, and I just. It's really, it's really on. It's an art that people I don't think appreciate enough. You got it. You exactly grasped what I was trying to do by playing that, because we invoke him and we know he was good, but we just forget what good was, or we know he was great and we forget how great great was once upon a time. And when he takes apart every single sentence that his opponent uh, argues seemingly sentences one wouldn't even think to take apart, right? Like, we don't negotiate with terrorists, that, or, you, you, or we don't negotiate under pressure, and how he took apart something that wouldn't even dawn on us to. You see a brilliant mind at work, unlike very, very many others, right? Well, exactly, and equally, I think you see an artist at work, and the way yeah. he spoke and, and his, his, 
even his voice. Imagine if he had a high squeaky voice. Wouldn't be the same. Imagine if English were his first language. Do you know it isn't? I do know it isn't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes. Most people are surprised to find that out. But let me let me let me proffer you this other piece that you can chase your wife around with. Um Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's also available on YouTube. And you're right, you kind of want to watch it as much as hear it because you see yeah. the way he works without really notes or anything. So there was a very famous debate in 1965. I think unfortunately he was on 80% of it the wrong side, but 1965, we'll forgive it and take it for what it was. It was a debate at Cambridge University against a black author named James Baldwin. And the audience was totally stacked against him, and it had to do with uh, the plight of uh, race in America. And uh, he said some fascinating things. He did some fascinating work in that debate. Again, as I say and stipulate, I I think on on the losing side of an argument, but he, he did what he could with it. The end, his conclusion, again, watch it. What he does in that audience, what he what his mind and matching that mind to his rhetorical ability was capable of is, uh, well, I could watch it ten times. I probably have. And it's uh, the Baldwin-Buckley debate. Watch it in its entirety. It's really quite something. I will revisit it. He was a treasure. We shall not see his like again, I fear. I fear that, too. And I think it starts again with our schools. You know, rhetoric, he didn't, st- I don't think he studied rhetoric. I think it came naturally to him. But rhetoric used to be a, a very valuable degree that we used to convey on, uh, that people could major in, and we don't anymore. And we probably ought to think about it again, especially as it declines in America. Yeah, no Maybe we can get to Buckley's. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Maybe we can get to Buckley's toenail if we study it again. But <clears throat> thank you for appreciating that, Jim, and for grasping what I was trying to do there. It, it means a lot. Thank you, Seth. You're the you're a treasure. You are too, sir. Thank you very much. God bless you, and have a very happy Thanksgiving. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We shall return. Living on refried dreams. I hope not when we honor the greats here uh, like we uh, did and spent some time doing earlier this week commemorating the birthday of uh, Mr. Buckley. I remember uh, – did I tell this story? I don't know if I did or not. When I was with uh, Dr. Bennett on his show, we did a day of tribute. And I'll just never forget the best call we had on a People called in and in and in on their memories of Bill Buckley as we did this for other great people who had passed from the scene during my tenure uh, with him, uh, whether it was Ronald Reagan or Jack Kemp, Gene Kirkpatrick. But when Bill Buckley died, I'll never forget this wonderful trucker from Georgia called in. And he said, the first time I heard him on or saw him on television, Mr. Buckley, I couldn't understand what he was saying, but I knew I wanted to. I couldn't understand what he was saying, but I knew I wanted to. There's a certain intelligence um, and ability to communicate you know when you're in the presence of someone who's intelligent. And um, Buckley had that, that tremendous gift. He wasn't right on everything, and he had changed his positions on things, which also, I guess, is a mark of, 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 of maturity. But I was, um, I, I, I was watching that debate he did with William Baldwin, and there was a recent book out on it 
came out uh, end of last year, which is an interesting dissection of that debate. Um, and it does turn out William Buckley was on the wrong side of that debate. So, too, one might say, was William Baldwin on the wrong side of it from his perspective? I'm sorry, James Baldwin. Thank you for the correction. Sorry, James Baldwin and William Buckley. They were both on the wrong but, but Baldwin was arguing for a civil rights that um, that uh, that William Buckley took a libertarian stance against um, and later later retracted. So it was a very difficult thing. But to watch the mind at work extemporaneous in front of a hostile audience like that at Cambridge was quite something. One of the students there who introduced William Buckley turned out to later become a great historian himself, Simon Shama. I don't know if you're familiar with his work on the French Revolution or not. It's the best work, I think, on the French Revolution. So a big group of intelligence there. A woman wrote a tribute to William Buckley and how he changed her whole world view. Her name was Emina Milonik. She wrote it this uh, this week, having been born in commun- communist U- Yugoslavia and then discovering what it was that um, that uh, that conservatism could mean. And I shared it with a small group of friends I discuss conservatism with on a frequent basis. A gentleman named Bill is one of them. He wrote so many points made in this essay that resonate: seeking the true, the good, and the beautiful, the habit of being. Know, be, do, taught at West Point as foundational elements of leadership. Bill is a graduate of West Point. Conservatism is a way of thinking about things, having a center informed by human experience through history and carries not as baggage but as reference, the lessons learned, and then exercising the free will to compare and contrast ideas with that center to arrive at a reasoned choice and decision that acknowledges the intransigence of the human condition while truly celebrating the expanse of human potential and daring to recognize that the human experience necessarily involves a relationship between the eternal and among one another. That's a mouthful. It's beautiful. I can read it again or you can play it back if you want. But I want you to think about it in the context of the age we're living in right now. Recognizing that the human experience necessarily involves relationship between the eternal and among one another. And what we are doing to ourselves right now over um, not only unnecessary but unwarranted fear. That statistically doesn't bear out and scientifically doesn't bear out. Listen to the scientists we're told but not that scientist. Listen to the doctors we're told but not the doctors I have on this show. Listen to the scientists and doctors, but not the ones that signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Do they not know what they're talking about? Are they any less credentialed? It is a shame on the entire notion of intellectual freedom, the First Amendment, and intellectual curiosity that the faculty of Stanford as a unit publicly denounced a doctor who deigned work for the Trump administration, who deigned dare question, deigned to dare question another scientist. Which scientist are we supposed to listen to? The one who has the studies on his side or the one who seems to make it up as we go along? Well, the first one was denounced by Stanford. The second one was praised. That's the age we live in. It's not a good age.
Still so much to be done. You bet there is. 602-508-0960. The great Elaine Bennett joining us at the top of the hour. She is the founder and president of a great program, national program based in Washington, D.C., the Best Friends Foundation, which uh, helps helps children in uh, urban, primarily in urban, not exclusively urban areas, make good life decision choices, particularly having to do with abstinence big hero of mine, big teacher of mine, as is her husband, Bill. Uh, She's going to join us on some Thanksgiving instructions, which I think you will find uh, important and refreshing. I am noticing um, a lot more talk around uh, the media over the mic on about the Michael Flynn pardon than perhaps I gave it enough justice to, uh, that, that uh, perhaps more than, than the justice I gave it. Um, I did talk about it in the first hour. I am glad this was done. I um, perhaps would have thought it predictable that this would have had to have been done, and I'm glad Donald Trump don't do it. Uh, I, I agree with the analysis that uh, Paul Mirangoff gave it. This was a more than justifiable pardon. The Justice Department's decision to dismiss the case against General Flynn should have ended his legal jeopardy. General Flynn served the country with distinction for decades, and he was set up by vindictive operatives in the Obama administration. Um, And the resulting prosecution was marred by irregularities and misconduct. You think about what the government can do to you when it wants to. You think about what it can do to the powerful. This is instructive when you think about how it can take not only the powerful down, and if it can, what it can do to the non those who seemingly don't have the power that a national security advisor has. They can set him up. They can entrap him. Think about that. You talk about it's not it's not at that point a swamp. It's not. It's an all encompassing Leviathan state. It's an it's the stuff of a banana republic in an autocracy. That's what it's the stuff of. And we better roll up our sleeves and pull up our socks to get ready to fight against more of it because you can see the authoritarian personality reigning so supreme in this country right now. Even under a Republican president, think about what's been done to this country. A Republican president with a Republican Senate, even under Republican governors in their states. Look at Ohio. I I, I, I frankly was ashamed. I, was, I, I didn't have a personal reason to be, but I... Do you ever get that queasy feeling when you watch something and you're even though you don't know the person doing it, it makes you feel ill. It makes you feel sick, almost shame for that person. I was watching before the show started a show where Geraldo Rivera was screaming at someone about how Ohio lost more people yesterday to covid than anyone all year. And he said, wear your damn mask, just wear your damn mask. Uh, I, I was ashamed that he that he was talking that way, that he was saying that. You listen to what Alex Berenson said. You do the studies yourself. You look at the Denmark study. You look at the studies I was quoting yesterday. They're not that hard to find. And you wonder if we're spending all this time, all this time enforcing and making a fetish of the wrong thing. We're wasting the time against the effort to do the right thing. Again, I give you the World Health Organization. Quote, 
There is currently no evidence that wearing a mask, whether medical or other types, by healthy persons in the wider community setting, including universal community masking, can prevent them from infection with respiratory viruses, including COVID-19. Close quote. New England Journal of Medicine, quote, we know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. Public health authorities define a significant exposure to COVID-19 as face-to-face contact within six feet with a patient with symptomatic COVID-19 that is sustained for at least several minutes. The chance of catching COVID-19 from a passing interaction in a public space is minimal, and in many cases, the desire for widespread masking is a reflexive reaction to anxiety over the pandemic. Close quote. CDC. Quote, there is limited evidence for their effectiveness in preventing virus transmissions, either when worn by infected person for source control or when worn by uninfected persons to reduce exposure. Our systematic review found no significant effect of face masks on transmission. Close quote. And yet you have people yelling, wear your damned mask and shaming people over wearing your damned mask. The Ohio cases itself particularly instructive. They've been under a mask mandate since July. 83% of the nation already masks. Is it the biggest deal in the world? It can be. As Alex said, think about what it will mean if we can get people to do this without science. What will we get them to do or can get them to do next? Beware. Beware. Beware the authoritarian personality in your interpersonal lives as well as in your government. That um, that story is big, but it may not be the biggest that we have to wrestle with. Because I was wrong about a lot this year. Too much. I was wrong about too much politically. Something I like to think I have as good a chance as the next guy of getting right. And one of the things I was wrong about was the effect of the media. I knew it was bad. I didn't think it was as powerful as they thought they were. And this new study from the Media Research Center is just incredible. Survey, it's a big one, in seven swing states. Post-election survey in seven swing states of Biden voters. 35.5% of them were unaware of the sex assault allegations, whereas 9% of them said they would not have voted for him had they known. 45% of Biden voters were unaware of the Hunter Biden scandal, whereas 9.4% of them said they would have voted against him had they known. 49% of them were unaware that we had achieved 33% economic growth, whereas 5% of them said they would have voted against him had they known. It's an incredible thing when you think of what the media did in concert with one another. The cartelization of oil was what William Buckley was talking about in 1968. What about the cartelization of what the media can do and control in 2020? Is it all powerful? No. Is it much more powerful than I assumed? Yes. Are we able to reform it? Probably not. Are we able to irrigate more forests, perhaps, and build new platforms? I hope so. I sure hope so. The effects 
of shifting away 9% of Biden votes, you think that wouldn't have mattered? Had 45% of his voters known about the scandal? Well, the media sure did a great job in cartelization of covering that up. That's as big a scandal as anything else this election. I sure think so. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. A little Lionel Richie there for you. Oh, my gosh, the lies, the lies, the lies, the lies, the revision, the revisionism. So Georgia's made a mistake. The Democratic Party has made a mistake in nominating Raphael Warnock as their Democratic candidate for the Senate. What with all his praise of Jeremiah Wright, including specifically his GD America sermon. So bring in the big boys. To help defend him, that would mean Barack Obama, who said on an interview this mor- in an interview this morning, in defense of Jeremiah Wright, Barack Obama said, in national politics, if you can take out a bunch of sound bites that say GD America, I'm not saying the words he used, even in the context of it is prophetic and biblical. He's just trying to describe, you know, how someone might feel. He wasn't promoting the notion that God was damning America. That's what Obama said today. It's not what Barack Obama said in 2008 when he finally had to deal with that sermon of Jeremiah Wright's. He went to Philadelphia, to the Constitution Center, to specifically and explicitly denounce Jeremiah Wright's sermon then when he was running for president. I'll quote him exactly from the transcript of his speech. On one end of the spectrum, we've heard the implication that my candidacy is somehow an exercise in affirmative action, that it's based solely on the desire of wide-eyed liberals to purchase racial reconciliation on the cheap. On the other end, we've heard my former pastor, Jeremiah Wright, use incendiary language to express views that have the potential not only to widen the racial divide, but that denigrate both the greatness and the goodness of our nation and that rightly offend white and black alike. I have already condemned in unequivocal terms the statements of Reverend Wright that have caused such controversy and in some cases pain. That was Obama in 08 condemning Jeremiah Wright's sermon that widened the racial divide and that, quote, denigrated both the greatness and goodness of our nation. Today, no, Jeremiah Wright was taken out of context because that is in the service of helping now Raphael Warnock. Boy, the things we are unlearning. Boy, the things we are unlearning now and being lied to about to engage in the great unlearning. We spoke earlier about the great relearning we need to undertake based on that Tom Wolf essay. We're going through a great unlearning. That's why we need a great relearning. I'm going to have some fun with Mrs. Bennett, the great Mrs. Elaine Bennett, coming right up. Don't go away. You don't want to miss this.